Go ahead and grab a seat. And uh, as you are, I would encourage you to take out your Bibles, if you have a copy of them, I hope you do, to James chapter 3. My name is Doug, I'm the campus pastor here at East Campus. It's a joy to be able to open God's Word with you and just to worship our risen Lord, Savior, this morning with you. Uh, We are, as a church, in the middle of a series, walking through the letter of James, okay? So James chapter 3, 1 to 12 is where we'll find ourselves this morning. I want to just, before I read the passage, let you know that um, I had the, just the awesome privilege and opportunity this morning of being over at Central Campus at 9 o'clock, and Will Fuelberth, our worship pastor at Parkview, um, had the chance to preach his first sermon at Parkview. And so it was an absolute It was an absolute home run. He knocked it out of the park. And so I would really encourage you. He did a fantastic job. He did such a good job, I thought to myself, what am I doing? I just want to preach his sermon. So I might. I don't know. I might. Maybe halfway through, just switch it up and see. But you won't know the difference. Unless you go and listen sometime this week. It'll be online. I think it's on YouTube this afternoon. And so I'd encourage you in the next seven or so days to just pop on there and listen to Phil, or sorry, Phil, Will, Will, try to combine his last name and first name there, Will listen to his message. It's fantastic, all right? It'd be a huge encouragement to him. All right, so James chapter three. I don't know about you guys, but James, it's, as we've been studying this book, I've been just approached by so many individuals the last couple of weeks who have just mentioned how significant the book of James was at some point in their spiritual journey. It's sort of the quintessential Christian camp-like moment, when you're, I don't know if you grew up, if you grew up like me, grew up in the church, going to maybe a Christian camp or youth group, and there, there's a moment sort of where you begin to sort of recognize like, wow, I say I believe one thing, but my actions, they do not line up with my beliefs. I'm acting differently, kind of recognizing some duplicity in our lives. And for many of us, that's a, that's a real significant moment. I don't know if you've had that, but James can be so helpful. He's just holding up a mirror, as we saw earlier, to us, allowing us to just examine our lives and, and to just see exactly um, what it is that we believe. And so um, this morning, he's going to do just that, considering uh, specifically referring to our speech Okay, James chapter three, one to 12, I'm gonna read and then I'll pray and we'll just dive right in. This is verse one. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they, also, though they are so large, are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a small fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and also and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? 
Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much this morning for just the opportunity that we have to come before you, Lord, and to be shaped and informed by you, by specifically by your word this morning. We recognize that your presence is here, your spirit is among us, and we know that he will guide us in truth, and we ask that he would do just that now. Lord, we ask that you would take these words which we believe and know to be eternal and true. Lord, and we ask that you would write them on our very hearts. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, on November 19th of 1863, near Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, President Abraham Lincoln gave what has been considered by many people to be the most significant speech in American history. Lasting, surprisingly, only three minutes and using up only 275 words, Lincoln was able to express the following sentiments. One, that America is both a place and a concept, both of which are worth fighting for. Two, that fighting is horrible, but losing is worse. And three, that he had no intention to lose. He was right about much of what he said, but there's one line that stands out as laughably inaccurate. Midway through the speech, he humbly said, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. He was wrong. He was wrong. The world did note, and it has long remembered his words. They were significant. His words on that day and since have mattered. They have. Do you know that words matter? I'll bet you do. Every one of us does. We know that words matter. If we just examine our life, we look back at some of the most pivotal, significant moments in our life, we will find oftentimes at those moments, words. Whether it's words that sound like, I do, or maybe it's words that were spoken by the, the first words out of a child's mouth, or maybe the last words that we heard from a loved one. Words maybe that sound like, I'm sorry, or I love you, or Goodbye. Words that have come out of our mouth, words that have been directed our way. As we look in our life, we see moment after moment that words matter. They do. As we look throughout the Bible, we see the power of God's word. That God both spoke the universe into existence and offers to save his people from their sins by his word. Look throughout the entire Bible, the law where it's, God reveals himself using 10 words. History books of the Bible where God communicates the story of God and his people written down for us by words so that we can understand who God is and who we are. Poetry books that, that express and show the beauty of God's word. Prophecy books warning God's people through his word. The Messiah himself, we're told, in these last days that God has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ, the very word of God. As we look at our life, we know that words matter. As we open up this 
book, we can see clearly that words matter. But we see specifically here in James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, is that while we know words matter, your words matter more than you think. I think that's what James is getting at here in this chapter. James has already introduced this topic of the the, the severity of our speech at the end of chapter one. In fact, he says that our ability to tame our tongue is one of the tests of a truly religious person. For the person who can't control their tongue, he calls their religion worthless. It's important for us to remember that as we read this letter, that one of his goals is to help us be consistent, wholly integrated Christians, people whose behavior aligns with their beliefs. It could be said that a probing question that James is getting at throughout the book, which holds this theme together is, if you say you believe like you do, why do you behave like you don't? Applied to this passage, if you say you believe like you do, why do you speak like you don't? As we consider areas of our life where inconsistency come to the surface, where our behavior and our beliefs seem to be out of alignment, it isn't surprising that speech is at the top of his list. I'm not sure that there's another place in the Bible where we are taught with such clarity and such impact about the destructive power that each of us holds in our mouth as we are right here in James chapter three, verses one to 12. As we look at these verses, I wanna just examine together three things. First, I want us to consider the power of words. Secondly, we'll consider together the problem of our words. And then finally, we'll look at the remedy for our words. James begins first as we look at the power. He begins with a strong word of warning. You see it right there in verse one, which in many ways sort of sets the tone for this entire section. It's a strong warning that tells us that what follows is serious. And it applies in a unique way to teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. It applies uniquely to teachers, what he is going to say. And this makes sense. For after all, teachers, specifically what James has in mind here is teachers of God's word. Teachers use a lot of words. There's a good chance that this morning, I'm going to speak more words than you are. All right? Some of you wish maybe perhaps I would speak a few less words. I don't know. But there's a good chance as a teacher, opening up God's word on a Sunday morning, just more words are going to be required from me. I have a unique role, and this role God sees as a role that he uses to speak truth to God's people, to form them as they are supposed to be. So not just is it a unique role where lots of words are required, but it has a significant impact. It it affects many people. The responsibility to, to handle God's word rightly is a significant responsibility. Lives are at stake. We're supposed to speak the truth. And because it's such a significant responsibility, James says because of this responsibility, teachers come under stricter judgment. That's a strong word. Every time a person rises to teach, they invite judgment on themselves. Their words fall under a higher level of scrutiny because they are, after all, not just expected to, to speak the truth, 
but also just like every follower of Jesus, to live the truth they speak. And like I said, teaching requires lots of words. Every week, more and more words. And these words, Jesus uses to build up, to encourage, to exhort, to warn, to teach his church, his beloved people. So you can see this is serious. Sets the tone for the whole passage. In verse two, he goes on to tell us that this is not just a warning for teachers. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. No one can fully control the tongue. We are fallible creatures. If anyone were able to control their tongue, he goes on to say, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So you see, at the very beginning of this section, we can see that that James sort of turns up the level of intensity with what he is about to say. This is serious business. Your words, my words, they matter probably more than we realize. He goes on to give three illustrations which make sort of a singular point about the tongue. See it in verse three. First, he talks about bits in the mouths of horses. Tongue sits in our mouth just like a bit does in a horse's mouth, a tiny piece of metal. This tiny piece of metal has the power to control a massive beast like a horse. Just a small little bit placed in a mouth can direct and steer a massive animal. So too can the tongue control the direction of our lives. See, the point he's trying to make with these illustrations is that the tongue, though it is small in size, it's big in power. It's the first point he's trying to make. Small tongue, big power. He goes on and makes it again. Verse four, he talks about rudders steering a ship, a small part of a ship able to guide and turn a massive vessel through even some, of, some dangerous water. And just as a small part of the ship turns the whole, so too the tongue has great influence, great power to determine the course of a person's life. Small tongue, big power. He goes on in verse five, how great a forest is set ablaze by smuch, such a small fire. The first two are probably maybe a little bit more relatable in antiquity. Certainly we can relate to this. Tongue is like a small spark that has the ability to create tremendous, tremendous fire. Fire that can burn out a whole forest. So too can the tongue set ablaze relationships, communities, set nations at war. The tongue is small, but it is incredibly powerful. Sums up his point in verse five. So also the tongue is a small member, but it boasts great things. Lives changed, futures redirected, simply by words. Tongue is small, but it's full of power. Another point that James is making is that this power, see it there in the third illustration, this power is great and it's also dangerous. It's also dangerous. His language grows increasingly intense to show just how dangerous the tongue is. Look down at verse six. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. He calls it a fire, a world of unrighteousness. While we know that the tongue is not necessarily more evil than other parts of the body, it's, it has the propensity, it has the capacity for evil that make it unique 
in our lives. You can't imagine parts of Proverbs, other parts of Scripture speaking to the knee or to the toe. But the tongue, one commentator calls it a microcosm, a concentration point of this world's evil. John Calvin calls it a slender portion of flesh that contains the whole world of iniquity. It's responsible for, James goes on to say, staining the whole body. Not only is it a unique member of the body, it affects the whole body uniquely. So that goes Jesus' teaching in Matthew 15, 11. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of a mouth. It says that it sets on fire the entire course of life. The tongue has the unique ability to set a flame to every area of a person's life. The whole person, no area of life is safe from its dangerous power. From cradle to grave, sparks flying. Threaten to absolutely wreak havoc on an entire person's life. Harsh words here, careless words spoken there, crude words over here, harmful words there, around every turn, at every phase, in every conceivable relationship in life, the human tongue blazes away. Goes on to say that it's set on fire by hell. Just in case you didn't think this was serious. It is set on fire by hell. All of this destruction shouldn't be all that surprising when you consider the origin, where it all comes from. Why do we have such a power to do such harm? Because our tongues are, James says, hellish. Satan himself gives the tongue its destructive power. Tongue can cause so much trouble because the original spark comes from hell itself. Restless evil, verse 8. Get in verse 8, full of deadly poison. So you see, what James is showing us is that though the tongue is small, it has great power to do tremendous harm. That's the power of our words. They're powerful, small, but powerful. Now, here's the deal. You already probably can see what the problem is with all of this, Right? But just in case you can't, the problem is even more significant than you likely thought. The reason why it's so significant because, well, let's just consider what the answer is not in this section. What we, ought, what we think it probably is, is that because the tongue is so powerful, if you're just reading along, you're thinking the way that this argument is going is because it's so powerful, we need to tame it. Our responsibility is to bring it under control. After all, our ability to do this is evidence that we're walking in integrity, that our religion, that our faith is the real deal, that it's legit. The man who successfully is able to do this, he calls a perfect man, a perfect woman, wholly integrated human being, consistent in what they say and what they do. So you might be thinking to yourself, all we have to do is bridle the tongue. All we have to do is wrangle it in, bring it under control to tame it. But here's the deal. There's a reason why you don't see this in the text. The reason is because you and I can't. We can't actually do it. Look at verse 7. He says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. See, this is the real problem. 
The tongue is small. It's powerful. It can do great harm, and you and I can't tame it. That's the real problem. Isn't it remarkable that all the things we're capable of doing, yet this one, this one little thing, we can't control. And I suspect everyone in, uh, every one of us in this room this morning doesn't just know this from reading what James says in chapter three. I suspect every one of us here this morning has real experiential knowledge of how precisely unable we are to tame the tongue. We can tame birds, he says. My, my mind immediately goes to Dave Conrad's at a Hawkeye in Kinnick Stadium at a Hawkeye football game. Up at the top, or I don't know, usually is Dave at the bottom. Maybe he's at the bottom of the field, but somebody releases that big hawk. Have you guys seen this? He does it, I think, at any, the, the basketball games or the wrestling games, the big hawk from the Raptor Center is released, and they have some sort of bait down on the field, and it soars down across 70,000 people in this vast, massive stadium and lands right on point exactly how it's supposed to. It's unbelievable. Dave Conrad's has tamed a hawk. It's amazing. Reptiles and sea creatures, they can be captured. They can be contained, brought under control in ways that you and I can't control our tongue. And to make matters even worse, we know the damage that it can do. That doesn't surprise any of us. We watch figures in the public space rise and fall because of how they use their tongue. Charismatic politicians who can speak words that draw people in and then one slip of the tongue one quote taken out of context, maybe one tweet that should have not been out there for everybody to see, sends them crashing to the ground. Careers destroyed, ruined, campaigns canceled, lives come undone with just one unguarded moment. And we see this in our own lives. We know, I know, pain that can be caused, that has been caused by words. We know the damage that it's, it can do. Now, it's interesting to note that James, what he doesn't do, he doesn't give us a TED Talk on how to rule our tongue. He doesn't say, now, here are the 10 steps to better speech, or here are the ten, seven tips to taming your tongue. That's not what he gives us. You see the problem here? James is utterly pessimistic about your tongue, about my tongue. So far, he's making three points abundantly clear. The tongue has tremendous power. Controlling our tongue is really important, yet none of us can actually do it. We all stumble in many ways. Here's what I believe James wants us to see above all else. Our tongue reveals both our sinfulness and simultaneously, it shows us our sinfulness and our inability to reform ourselves. Just by listening to the words that come out of our mouths, we recognize and cannot question. 
our sinfulness and our inability to reform ourselves. It's a real problem and we're unable to fix it. This is exactly what James wants to show us. I think really this is what's unique about this letter. We will come to one section after another and I think he takes us to a point where we see I have a serious problem and there's not much I can do about it. So what are we to do about it? What is the remedy? Hopefully that's the question everybody's asking. Are we just sort of stuck? Is there any hope offered at all? Though not, it's, although it's not totally direct, we're given a couple of hints by James where the remedy for this serious problem that every one of us shares, where it comes from. Look what he says in verse eight. It says, but no human being can tame the tongue. That's true, we all know it. St. Augustine points out, James does not say, no one can tame the tongue, but no human being. Unable to handle this problem, to reform ourselves by ourselves, we are left in a position where we must look elsewhere, where we must look for help outside of ourselves. You see, what is impossible for you and for me is gloriously possible for God. Our tongues need to be set ablaze, not from hell below, but from God himself above. That's where our hope comes from. And it's a hint in the scripture as to where James is leading us, where we must look. And what is it that God must do? What is the work that must be done? Notice the three illustrations he, he uses. Each of them sort of have two different parts. The bit and the horse, the, the rudder and the ship. Well, they, they actually have, one of them is explicit. The others is assumed a third part in the illustration. The horse assumes that there's a rider on top of it who's, who's moving the reins, who's adjusting the bit that's guiding the horse. We see with the ship that there's a, there's a pilot, there's a captain who, who moves with the steering wheel so that the rudder will move, guiding the ship according to its intended purpose and desired location. So too for us, there is a third part. There, there is a tongue which sets ablaze the course of our life, but there is a heart that moves the tongue. And that's really where the problem lies. It's a problem, our problem is a heart problem. I think you see that in verses nine and 10, where he says, as he considers the tongue, he says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. See, here's the deal. Here's this terrifying reality, Parkview East. It is possible for us in just a few minutes to stand up, to open up our mouths, and to sing the doxology together, singing blessing and praise to God our Father for precisely who he is. To then close our mouths, slap on a smile, go about our way, and just in a few hours, perhaps for some of us, a few minutes, open up that exact same mouth using the exact same tongue, and begin to speak words that castigate, belittle, 
or break somebody else down. Not just somebody else, but somebody who's made in the very image and likeness of the God that we just got done praising. That is possible. Some of us know that reality all too well, that we are capable of speaking well and also spewing venom at the very image of God. He's not just saying that our mouths are capable of two types of words. He's saying more than that, that there's two kinds of speech that reveal corruption, lack of integrity in our hearts. There's a corruption at the source. The speech is a window into our soul. Verse 11, he goes on, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James is getting right to the source of what our problem is. Jesus says so himself in Luke 6, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So while he's very clear from verse 1 that you and I have a serious problem, he's also very clear from verse 1 that that problem involves our tongue. He also makes it clear that really what our problem is is a heart problem. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, first, we need, if we want any hope of being consistent Christians who believe Jesus, trust him in our life, and take one step and speak one word that reflect the belief that is in our heart, we first and foremost need a change of heart. What Jesus is not trying to do this morning is to load us up with guilt and shame for us to walk out of here, to beat ourselves up and break ourselves down because of our sin. That's not his hope this morning. It's not my hope either. Jesus offers fresh hope for foul mouth sinners like you and me. And boy, do we need it. Fresh hope. And that hope begins with not merely a change of heart, but changed hearts, new hearts. We must first open our hearts to God himself. And then and only then, when our heart is right with God, can our mouth speak righteously and offer words that don't destroy life, but that give life to others. Later on, we'll see that what James is building towards in chapter four, and I believe Len gets the amazing privilege of preaching this passage. Two two verses in James chapter four, he says, but he gives more grace. See, the God that we worship, the God that we proclaim, the God that we follow, he's a God who gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. What God wants us to do this morning is to just square up and be real to confess our sins before him. He knows them already and to receive his forgiveness. God's words matter to us more than any words we can hear. More than any words we can hear. No words that come from our mouth can't be conquered by words that come from his mouth. That's the good news 
that we have to celebrate and proclaim this morning. The words spoken to us. There are no words that are spoken to us that can't be healed by one single word spoken by God himself. Words that sound like to sinners and sufferers like you and me, I love you. Words that sound like I want you. Words that sound like I forgive you. Words that God is, just like Wade said at the very beginning, he's got his arms open wide. And what he wants for you and to me is to square up with our sin and just crash into those arms and to receive the newness of life that comes from his word given to us. Changes hearts. Secondly, we have the amazing opportunity as we consider what does it look like to be obedient to James chapter three, to learn from Jesus. Jesus offers us a new heart and then we learn from him as well. This is, if you remember, one of the the significant markers of being a follower of Jesus is to, to learn from Christ. Verses nine to 12 show us the inconsistency in our lives, the inconsistency that we all know exists in our hearts And the words that come out of our mouths, words both of blessing and of cursing from the same mouth. But when we look at Jesus and we learn from his life and how he lived, what we discover is there is a man who was perfect, who did live a consistent life, who perfectly spoke, who loved perfectly. There was no inconsistency or duplicity about him. This man spent his life, he was described in the Bible as an individual who was full of grace and truth. A really good descriptor of what our speech should sound like. Full of grace and full of truth. In Luke, he was described as a man who was mighty in both word and deed. Totally consistent. Word and deed, powerful. And in his darkest hour, having humbled himself to the point of death, this man hanging on the cross, receiving one cursed word after another by his accusers, by his murderers, cursing after cursing after cursing. What does Jesus do as he hangs on the cross? He opens up his mouth and do you know what comes out? Words of blessing. He was cursed, hanging on a tree. And yet in his darkest hour, he chooses to speak words of blessing. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He spoke blessing. He didn't curse them back. And he gives us an example of what a consistent life looks like. Mighty in word and deed. We learn from Jesus. And then thirdly, we live like Jesus. This is an invitation this morning to model our lives after the only consistent man to ever walk this earth, Jesus himself. We live like Christ. I'm helped by my wonderful friend, Dumbledore, with these words. He says this, words are, in my not so so humble opinion, both our most inexhaustible source of magic, capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. See, words are so powerful. Like we see in James, they have the ability to absolutely ruin people in lives. But they also have the ability and the power to build lives, to give life. And God has given us words 
They're so powerful. They can, they can change someone's day for good. Did you know that? That your words can have that impact on somebody? That you can speak truth and an encouraging word into somebody's life and it can, it can reorient and potentially redirect an entire day. Even, even more than that. It, it can, these are words that can be used to build up and to actually give life to somebody. Jesus has given us his word and one of the commands he gives us in scripture is that our responsibility as followers of Jesus is to simply, this is, this is a blast. This is so fun. And guess what? Any of us can get in on this. To simply, speak. we don't have to come up with new cool things to say. What a relief. I'm completely the least creative person in this room. All we have to do is open up our mouth and let his word come out. Just speak what he's already said. It doesn't get any easier than that. Just speak his word. And we have the ability, there's power in that word to actually give life through the power of his spirit to other human beings. That's amazing. What an awesome privilege. What a tremendous power you and I possess in our mouths. It's amazing. Just to give you a sample of what this looks like, I think there's a couple of verses. I just want to read here in closing Ephesians chapter four. Listen to how Paul says what this speech should look like or sound like, better yet. It says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. See, God is the God who gives more grace. And through our speech, do you know what we get to do? We get to share the grace that we receive with God with our brothers and sisters. That's amazing. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. That's the old life, he says. That's the way you were before. When you had an old heart, before your heart was changing, you had a new heart. That was the old you. There's a different way that we are supposed to speak. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Parkview East. What an amazing opportunity. What an amazing responsibility we have. And we lack nothing to actually pull it off. He gives us his spirit. He makes his word clear to us. And all he wants us to do is speak words of grace and truth to one another. What a great assignment. What a great assignment. I, I love that about this church. I love that about this church. Constantly encouraging. I love that about that man right there, Wade Urich. It's his last Sunday with us at East, at least as a Parkview employee. And I love that, brother. This is a verse that he has helped me discover. Many of you, many of you can relate and understand if you've gotten to know him. He is a man who speaks God's word. He preached on this passage just not too long ago, and he embodies it. So many of you here today, so many of you here today do just that. Speaking words that give life and not take it away. That's what he wants from us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word as it comes to us. Lord, we know, we know that this is a tall task. Lord, just the vision that you have for our speech and, and how we are to sound as we open up our mouths, Lord, 
Our prayer is simply that you would help us to sound like Jesus. Lord, that we would be people who would be like Jesus, mighty in both deed and word. Lord, help us, the power of our words, be able to encourage, exhort, comfort, heal, build up, confront, challenge, love one another. Lord, that your grace, as it comes to us, Lord, that it would flow through us. And in doing so, Lord, it would build us into the people that you have called us to be. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.